Raise your hand if you're into a TV show right now. Wow, it's actually less than what I would have thought. Um, yay, good job. <laughs> Can't use that point, no. Um, well, in the last year, I'm sure you've been into a show. And, you know, if you ask most people on the street, they're into their shows. Uh, they might be into one or, or several and we also love to evangelize our shows. Hey, have you watched, have you watched this yet? No, 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 I haven't yet, but I, got, I, I need to. I know I'm behind. Uh, there's a great Jim Gaffigan bit where we feel like we're in debt collection. I know, I know I'm behind. I, I know I need to catch up. Just give me, give me a few weeks. I'll, I'll catch up. Don't worry. <laughs> what is it that, that we love about our shows? Is it the plot development? For sure, yeah. We all, we all want to know how a ragtag gang of middle schoolers in 1980s Indiana is going to face a supernatural threat that emerges from a different dimension. Right? Stranger Things? Wow. But plot development isn't the only thing that keeps us coming back. Uh, that's why you can have a show like Seinfeld. You know, it, what's the plot development of Seinfeld? Nothing. <laughs> Famously, it's a show about nothing. And, and so what, what keeps us coming back for shows about nothing? It's the character development. You know, we want, we want to see these characters, we want to see them grow and, and change and struggle and deal but we also want to see them collide with one another. <laughs> and so, if a show is full of one-dimensional characters, we don't like that. You know, that, that show is going to flop. It's as we see ourselves in characters that keeps us coming back. It's, it's what keeps us interested. It's what keeps us excited. And that's why it's hard to produce a movie or a show about Jesus. Because it's hard to do that without being either one-dimensional or heretical. <laughs> if, if you just stick to the script, you're one-dimensional. But if, if, you, if you kind of maybe explore different, different avenues of what Jesus might have gone through, you might get heretical. You just might. You don't have to, but you might. It's hard to develop a character who is God. Does he change? Does he struggle? Does, you know, what inner life can you portray without veering off course? But that's why I love these passages in Isaiah. That's why I love these servant songs. Why? Because we get to have a peek at the character development of Jesus in, in his act of emptying himself of his divine privileges to take on flesh, to take on weakness, to take on need. We see that even though, yes, he remained a person of the Trinity, fully God, as a man, though, he took on human attributes. He, he took on the need for learning, we see here. 
He took on the need for instruction, the need for confidence, the need for guidance. We can open to a passage from from seven centuries before Jesus came to earth as a man to learn details about his inner life, what he thought about, what he struggled with internally. Some details we don't even see fully orbed in the Gospels. We see here. And so specifically in this servant song, we learn about his character. You know, the first week we learned about his kingdom, that he's going to come, he's going to establish a kingdom of justice on earth. And then the second week we looked at his citizens, his people, which is people from every tongue, tribe, nation, country on earth, across time and space. And then this week we're looking at his character. That is, his internal being. What makes him tick? Why did he choose to lay down his life? Why did he choose to empty himself of his divine privileges to do what he did? Why did he choose to go through suffering that we're going to look at next week in Isaiah 53? Why? Who's the the man behind the curtain? And so this week we see three aspects to his character. We see that he is discipled by God. That he's discipled by his Father. Secondly, we see that he is obedient to God. Not only is he discipled, instructed, taught, he then does it. So he's obedient. And thirdly, but most importantly, he is secure in God. He is fully, 100%, utterly, confidently secure in this relationship and in who God is. So, looking back at verses 4 through 6, we see that this servant is discipled by God the Father. Starting in verse 4, it says, The Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So firstly, how do we again know that this is Jesus? doesn't say Jesus here, so prove it. If you look at verse 10, it kind of recaps and summarizes what's been said and says, okay, all of that said, who among you fears the Lord and obeys who? The voice of his servant. And so here we see in these verses, it's been this capital S servant that's been talking. And we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus himself claims this title for his own. And the rest of the New Testament writers attribute this role to him, the servant of the Lord, the ideal servant that would accomplish what the failed servant Israel couldn't do. And so here we see Jesus as the original disciple 
twice he counts himself among those who are taught, it says. And that word is basically a word used elsewhere in the Old Testament for a group of disciples. He says, I am among the disciples of God. Jesus is a disciple. Wow. Jesus learned stuff. And, you know, that, that is a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus is God, right? Doesn't he know everything at all times? Isn't he omniscient, which is the word for all-knowing? But it says right here that this servant underwent daily instruction. Morning by morning, he awakens me, he, he wakes me up and says, time for you to keep learning. And so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he's been, he's been pre-existent with the Father for eternity. He has no beginning but he, in some sense, and in some way that I'm not going to try and explain to you right now, laid down his omniscience, in some sense, for a time. In order to what? In order to be weak. In order to be in a place of need. Need for guidance. Need for understanding. Need for direction. Why? Well, one reason is to model the route that we are to take too. That we are not to find our guidance, our, our vision, our direction from within ourselves. That we are to learn from another. That's what Jesus modeled. And look how it wasn't just, it wasn't an overnight thing. It says, morning by morning. This was a process, even for the eternal Son of God. This took discipline. It took patience. And Jesus confirms this in, in John chapter 5, and when he said this, he said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, he said, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. What does that sound like? It sounds like a disciple. It sounds like an apprentice. It sounds like someone in training. I do what, I do what my Father does. I'm just copying Him. He's showing me the ropes. And so this is discipleship. You know, Jesus, in essence, says to us, imitate me as I imitate my Father. Just like Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what, we know, we just learned that Jesus is taught. What is he taught? What, what constituted the lessons God the Father instructed the Son in? Well, here in these verses we see that God gave him both a message and a method. Firstly, the message. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That's the message that he's been given. This, 
message is to sustain those who are weary. The same word is used just 10 chapters earlier in Isaiah as the book turns toward this message of hope that God has both for Israel and for the nations at large. It says this, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And Karina just prayed this earlier. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God has given Jesus, the Son, the servant of the Lord, this message to sustain those who are weary. This gospel message that Jesus has been given to declare is for those who are weary. And so it's no wonder Jesus basically repeated and reframed those same verses in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, a.k.a. those who are weary, he said. Come to me and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we, Jesus, we see Jesus proclaiming this message to sustain those who are, re- who are weary. The purpose of the message of Jesus is to bring relief, restoration, healing, also known as salvation, to weary souls. And so we see him being taught and given this message. What else has he taught? Not just a message but a method to use. And what is that? What do we see here? The method is one of suffering. And we're going to get more details on what that meant next week. But here we see, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. What was the message? What was the instruction? It was the method. And what was the method? To give your back to those who strike. To to give your cheeks to those who pull out the beard. To hide not your face from disgrace and spitting. This was part of the instruction the Father gave to him. You know, I'm going to give you a message and I'm going to give you a method. Speak the message. Embody the method. Speak the message of salvation. Embody the message in humility and suffering. A message and a method. This is the dual lesson of discipleship that God the Father entrusted to Jesus the Son. And this carries forward all the way to the end. All the way into and throughout the New Testament. What is the picture of the conquering Jesus in the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Firstly, 
In chapter 5, John looks up into heaven, and who does he see on the throne? A slaughtered lamb. That's who's on the throne. Humility and suffering is baked into who Jesus is, even in his conquering. Second, when Jesus arrives on a white horse in Revelation 19 to conquer and to subjugate all peoples, how does he come? He comes with a sword coming out of his mouth and a robe dipped in blood. The sword is the message. The blood is the method. So after being instructed by the Father with this dual lesson of a message and a method, what does he do next? We see in verse 5, he's obedient. He does it. Looking at verse 5 again, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. In other words, I went through with it. I implemented it. I heard the instruction and I walked in it. Jesus put his learning to practice. He did it. A couple things to know about this obedience. It means, firstly, that he had a choice in the matter. That Jesus had a fork in the road here. To obey or not. To suffer or not. He took the fork in the road of obedience. He was not a helpless victim. You know, some people come against Christianity and say, you know, that's just divine child abuse. The Father God sends his beloved child to die. What? But they mistake the fact that Jesus was fully aware and fully knew what he was getting into, and he decided to do it. He knew what he was doing. And he confirms this again in the Gospel of John. He says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, Jesus says, to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. I have received this charge from my Father. This is the upside-down nature of the ways of God. That his most powerful, his conquering servant, goes the way of suffering. Now, one of the most, you know, classic arguments against the existence of God, at least the Christian God, is this. You know, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? It's a great question. It's a challenging question. It's one that Christians have wrestled with for centuries. And it's a valid question, especially for anyone who has faced significant suffering the loss of a loved one, and all sorts of, of suffering that people in this world encounter, yourselves included. And there are all sorts of answers for this question. There's, there's intellectual answers. There's, there's heart answers. There's, there's all sorts of, of helpful ways to process this. 
And one is that God wanted human beings to have the freedom to choose him, right? That he wanted us to have free will to, to say, I want God, or to say, I don't want him. To say, I'm going to do the right thing, or I'm not going to do the right thing. Or I want to love and honor God, or I don't want to. Because if you didn't have a choice, would it really be love? And that's a, that's a, a good answer. But here's an alternate question. Instead of saying, how could this type of God allow pain and suffering? We could ask this question, how does this all-loving and all-powerful God choose to use his love and power? And I see two ways here that he does it. That firstly, in our lives, God is so powerful and so good and so loving that he can redeem and use even your suffering for your good and to glorify him. That he, is, he knows how to use circumstances and he's so loving to you and powerful that, that he can use this horrible, difficult situation you're in to bring you further along in your character, in your relationships, in your ability to honor him. That's power. No other God or belief system can accomplish such a feat. A pastor named Ray Ortland said, he said, when we turn away from God-ordained hardship, we are rebelling against God and diminishing our own capacity to breathe life into others. I don't know about you, but some of the most clear paths that God has been guiding me on involve the most pain I've ever had. And yet, this is how he does his best work. He does it through pain. He does it through suffering. He, he does it through getting at the deepest core of our being that no one else can touch and do any good but him. And so he's so powerful and so loving that he can do that for you. But also, how else does he use this power in his love? He used it to purchase your salvation. Both his power and his love in the person of Jesus Christ emptied himself to absorb all of the sin and brokenness of the world into his own body. This is what's called the power of God for salvation for you. Both power and love came together in the person of the suffering servant. That's how he, chose, he chooses to use his power and his love. And so Jesus, we see here, he chose obedience. He chose to put these lessons into practice. So the question is, did he do it begrudgingly? You know, did, did he do it to check the box? Did he do it while muttering under his breath? Oh, I don't want to do this. Well, let's find out. 
verses 7 through 9. What is his attitude towards obedience? It says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so here we see this this third aspect of the character of the servant is that he is secure. He is totally secure in his father. He's confident. Twice the servant says it. He says, the Lord God helps me. I can do this. Why? How? Because the Lord God helps me. God instructs him him to, to preach this message, to go the way of suffering, and he does it. But when he does, God is present the whole time. And look what what confidence the presence of God provides him here. He says in verse 7, The Lord God helps me, therefore, therefore, what? I have not been disgraced, even in the midst of being spit on. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, which is another way of saying, I'm going to do this no matter what, even though I'm about to be beaten tortured, and killed. You know, we see in in the book of Luke, one of the Gospels in the New Testament, that about halfway through the book, it says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And that's referring back to this, that no matter what, he was going to go through with this. No matter what came. And so why is he so confident? It says in verse 8, it's because he who vindicates him is near. And so this, you know, both in Isaiah's context as well as Jesus' context, we're in an honor-shame culture. The worst thing that could happen to you was to be shamed. The best thing is to be honored. Here, paradoxically, it is through the deepest shame that he is going to experience the highest honor. So he doesn't drag his feet. In fact, he starts talking smack. Do you see that? He says, he who vindicates me is here. Who will contend with me? Bring it on. Who is my adversary? Come here. Come to my face. Talk to me. I got no problem. He knows justice will come for him. His innocence will be known in the end. The guilt of those who did this would also be known in the end. He had a a long-term vision. He could see past his suffering to the glory that would come. And so this security in God, in his relationship with God, provides the fire for his obedience. 
his, his knowledge of being helped, of being honored, of being vindicated, invigorates him. His relationship gave him an appetite for obedience. And that can be the same for us. No, we don't obey so that we can be close with God. God invites us to be close with him. And he teaches us how to walk. He instructs us in the way. As David says, he leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's that security in this relationship that, that propels him forward. And he says as much, again, in the book of John, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know, I have a lot of appetites. I, there's a lot of things I want to do. There's a lot of, uh, you know, holes I want to fill. There, there's a lot of enjoyment I want to get. And Jesus says, my appetite is single to do the will of God. That's what gets me going. That's what excites me in the morning. That's what fulfills me at night. And many of us obey God to get him off our back. Or we obey him because we're afraid of what he'll do to us if we don't. But Jesus obeyed because he trusted in the goodness and wisdom of his Father. He was a, a joy-filled apprentice of his father. You can imagine in the ancient times, a, a father's apprentice just growing up. It's, he, they work from home, right? They're there working, and the son, the daughter, whoever's going to inherit the, the practice, the, the craftsmanship gets to learn at the father's side. This is exactly how Jesus says he did it. And now God invites us to apprentice under the original apprentice, under the original disciple. Jesus was the first disciple, and then God the Father entrusts all authority in heaven and on earth to him, it says in Matthew 28. And then Jesus says, all right, now you guys go and make disciples of me, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And what? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the question we need to ask ourselves today is at the start of verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? And remember, one of the goals of God is to make you more like Jesus. And so when we reflect on the character of this servant, the character of Jesus, we are meditating on where God wants to bring us. If this is the character of Jesus, then this is the character God wants to form in you. If you've submitted yourself to Jesus' leadership, then this is where the Holy Spirit is taking you. He wants you to be teachable. He wants to give you the tongue of those who are taught. That we might know how to sustain with a word those who are weary. 
You know, if only the Christian church in America thought of the gospel as the message to proclaim to those who are weary. Because that is the message. The message is for those who are weary. And he wants us to be willing to be humbled and even to suffer for the sake of others. He doesn't want us just to take the message and go with it. He wants us to take the method. The message is cruciform. Sorry, the method is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. But he wants us also to know who it is that is with us the whole time. He wants us to experience that intimacy that Jesus did. He wants to, us to experience the security in our relationship with the Father that propels us towards obedience. We don't just obey to check a box or to get him off our backs. We obey because it's the most fulfilling life we could imagine. If we want a life of adventure, this is it. To honor and obey God with all of ourselves, full of unknowns, yes. Unpredictable, yes. But a life of faith is adventurous. A life of sharing this message, of embodying this method, is what he calls all of his disciples to. Because that's what he did. We're just trying to copy him, turns out. Today, Jesus has the same message and the same method. Now, we are called to imitate and represent him to this weary city. Let's pray. Lord, how should we, your people, respond to these words that describe our Savior? This is not an easy task. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd convict and invite us to respond how you'd have each of us to respond. I'm going to give two minutes for silence. We're just going to keep it silent in here. And I want you to, to listen. Listen for what the Holy Spirit might want to be speaking to you through and because of his word through and because of the character of Christ. What specific way he wants to touch your life today. So let's all listen for that for these next couple minutes.
There might be those here this morning who need to be more sure and confident of God's presence with you. Throughout your day, calling you, inviting you, encouraging you, directing you, loving you. Lord, for those who are in that place, who even though they've, they've lived and, and believed even the message, that they're still weary, that they've been thinking of you as a, as a taskmaster to, to appease versus a father who desperately loves them. I pray that your spirit would do this work in them today to, to fill them with your loving presence. Holy Spirit, to know the love of God and to bring glory to Jesus with their daily lives simply because they're a beloved child of God. That when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they don't think of is how behind they are, how lacking they are, how incompetent they are, how insecure they are, how worried they are, how anxious they are, but they wake up thinking of the good news that is you. That you are not just existent, but present. I pray that you would pour into them even right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Convince them, display, shed abroad the love of the Father in their hearts because of Christ. And for those who, who need to say yes to Jesus, who have not said yes to Jesus, I pray that, Spirit, you would confirm the reality of Jesus to them, both in their heads and in their hearts. That this, this Christianity thing is not just valid, a valid way to believe on paper, but it actually impacts their soul and refreshes their spirit. It helps them. It, it gives them strength. It helps them to mount up with wings like eagles. This good news, your presence with them. And for those of us who just need a time to enjoy worshiping you together with our family, bless us as we do so. Bless our time that remains of response and just outpouring of love and gratitude and worship and praise and devotion to you, God, because you are worth it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're someone who finds yourself in a place that I mentioned in prayer of, of, of needing that reminder of who you are and whose you are, I want you to come forward and get prayer from either Karina or Amy, who's up here. Come forward and receive that prayer that you need. Receive prayer from someone who loves you, who cares for you. And then we're just going to praise and worship God. Uh, you can do so with your finances here in this box if you want. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, who, who take this call seriously, to be a disciple of the disciple. Uh, communion is set, the Lord's Supper, the table is set before us, which is all we need. The person and work of Jesus is all we need. And what he's done, accomplished it all. It is finished, he said, as he, di as he died. 
And so the table is set, his blood that was poured out, his body that was broken. You can come take of that as you would like. Let's spend some time worshiping God.